I'm Amrit Swirly and you're listening to Undercurrent, the podcast from Chatham House. For today's episode, I'm joined by the hosts of Warpod, Abigail Watson and Delina Gojo. Abby and Delina, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Amrit. Thank you. For this episode, we took a look at the security and policing situation in Nigeria, particularly the, the NSARS movement from last October. Abby and Delina, who did you guys speak to? So we spoke with Tarela Ike from Teesside University and Ode Friday from Accountability Lab. And one of the key themes that emerged from our conversation with them was this idea of the power of individual actors and individual actions for changing the narrative and obtaining better accountability from the Nigerian government for young people. I would also add that our conversation revealed this key gap between the issues discussed at a local and national level and those within international debates. And throughout the conversation, the importance of trust in institutions was evident, whatever we were discussing, whether that was the NSARS movement or whether that was the preventing violent extremism programmes run in the northeast of the country. Brilliant, thank you. And in the second interview, you'll hear from Mariam Haruna and Tolu Oni, Mariam is a member of Chatham House's Common Futures Conversation, which is a platform that engages youth from across Africa and Europe on policy issues. And Tolu is a member of Chatham House's panel of young advisors. Tolu and Mariam spoke about their experiences of the NSARS movement from the end of last year to the beginning of this year and touched upon the role of social media, what the policing situation is generally like in Nigeria, and also the key factors in creating lasting and sustainable change. Let's have a listen. Hi both, thanks very much for joining us. Can we start by you introducing yourselves and some of your work? My name is Sorella Ike and I'm a lecturer in criminology and policing at Teesside University and my research spans around reintegration in post-conflict settings as well as looking at the drivers of terrorism, radicalisation and de-radicalisation. My name is Ode Friday, I work with Accountability Lab Nigeria as the country director. Um, We operate in eight to 10 countries. And what we do is making governance work for citizens wherever we operate um, to ensure the citizens benefits from governance as the case may be. Tarela, could you start by giving us some background to Boko Haram? I understand this is a very wide question. And the de-radicalization and reintegration efforts that have been used in response to this armed group. When we talk about Boko Haram, The emergence of Boko Haram is the subject of debate where scholars have often argued that the group emanated in 1995, where others perceive it to have emanated in 2002. But beyond the exact date of emergence, it's been widely acknowledged that Muhammad Yusuf, who is the demise leader of the group, is actually the founder of Boko Haram. So when we talk about the background and ideological underpinning of Boko Haram. Boko Haram could be situated within the context of the Salafist jihadist ideology, and I would explain what that means in a second. So Salafism itself is a return of Islam back to those that is practiced by the pious um, predecessor of Prophet Muhammad. 
So what it advocates is that those pious predecessors, which is the first three generation after Prophet Muhammad, are the righteous set. It's not that there is any problem wrong with Salafism in itself, but it's the use of jihad, which is the Salafist jihadist, which is a specific aspect that Boko Haram fits in with when it comes to ideology where they use jihad. And by jihad, I'm referring to the violent struggle, the use of violence to actually achieve their aim. That's what um, tends to explain why Boko Haram tried for the return of, um, in, in a sense, the establishment of an ex- Islamic caliphate in Nigeria and the abolishment of Western influences in the form of culture, in the form of innovations, in the form of education, and even system of government. Boko Haram could be seen as actually drawing on that specific category as a means of informing its emergence. But in addition to that, um, when we think about the context of Boko Haram and the background to it as well, one could um, situate it as an offshoot of some of the socioeconomic conditions of Nigeria. And by socioeconomic conditions, we're talking of poverty, unemployment, corruption, as well as a range of other issues, including the alleged brutality of security forces and the lack of accountability as well. So um, having said that, in terms of the context and background of Boko Haram, the Nigerian government have tried to make concerted efforts at addressing some of these issues. And I really want to commend them in that regard. But of course, we do know more needs to be done in terms of actually addressing the conflict. So the government have also come to realize that military interventions in itself will not be enough to address the situation. So we've seen diverse administration introducing something like the Office for National Security Advisor, often referred to as ONSAR, and programs including the National Security Corridor, which is a program that is designed for reintegration purposes of repentant terrorist combatants or those that are classed as low risk as the case may be. So there's also the program called Operation Safe Corridor, and that program involves relevant stakeholders and government agencies such as the um, Nigerian Immigration Service, Nigerian Police Force, Department of Security Services, etc. And the, the aim of that program, if you look at the way it is designed, it tends to class offenders into high risk and low risk offenders. And the reason for this is that that would help them to decide which one is more suitable for prosecution and the ones that are more likely to go through rehabilitation and reintegration. Those are some of the things that the government have done in the form of addressing the conflicts in addition to the use of military interventions. As you mentioned in some of your work, the shortcomings have often been based on a lack of trust in the Nigerian system or, as you say, a lack of ownership on the process. Can you briefly explain some of the ways in which you saw that? I'll start with the lack of ownership of the process. Based on the study that I conducted and the synthesis that was done in line with existing studies with my colleagues, what we found was a sense that community perceived the program as not representing their beliefs, their values, and their norms. So they saw the program as a top-down approach, so something that does not really integrate them into the process something that does not really encompass um, their values in that sense. So 
that was the perception that was held in relation to the program. And a possible explanation of why that perception is, is that it might be that, of course, the government might have involved relevant stakeholder, but it might be that more needs to be done in terms of transparency of how these programs are designed in the form of involving relevant stakeholders. And by stakeholders, I'm talking about community leaders, I'm talking about youth leaders, and all the relevant parties that are actually directly affected by the situation. So there was the sense that the program does not really represent that particular bottom-up approach where the community were at the grassroots of the design of the program. And that's why they were skeptical about whether or not it would be successful at reintegration. And in terms of the lack of trust in the Nigerian system, this in itself is not just peculiar to Boko Haram. There are instances where community members sort of like um, describe even those of the Niger Delta militants as shrouded in perceived corruptions and the fact that whether or not the government agency have what it takes to ensure that when this repentant and reintegrated combatants are, are placed back in the society, that they would not reoffend. And part of this is because, again, like I said, it ties down to the whole issue of transparency. How is this program designed? What are the measures in place that would ensure that once these persons are reintegrated back into the society, they would not reoffend? We've seen situations where most recently the government have introduced what is called the NIN, which is like the national identification number to capture databases of everyone in Nigeria. So those type of interventions and measures could actually build confidence in the program because what the community perceived the program to be in terms of the security agencies and government agency administering this program is that there is not enough information that would build confidence that once these people get back into society, they will not reoffend. So those are some of the things that were actually associated with how community perceived the reintegration programs. I would turn to you now, Ode, um, and I know you've mentioned accountability lab briefly already. Could you tell us a bit more about what you do? At accountability lab, we work to make governance work for citizens wherever we work in, which is basically broken down into three components at accountability lab, what we call accountability lab campaigns, accountability lab knowledge, accountability lab communities. I'll focus on what we do at Accountability Lab campaigns. And one of the projects we focus on is Integrity Icons. Um, basically, what our strategy is at Accountability Lab, we work with active citizens, responsible leaders, and accountable institutions. And we work in meaningful ways to support persons we identify in all of these processes or institutions which are accountable and how to support them. And like I mentioned at Accountability Lab, one of our key programs is called the Integrity Icon. Basically, the Integrity Icon is a global campaign that is powered by citizens in search of honest government officials. It aims to generate a debate around the idea of integrity and demonstrates the importance of honesty and personal responsibility. Basically, we hope to inspire a new generation of more effective public servants in, in the case where one of the gaps, um, like we've talked about earlier on, there's a lack of accountability which fuels and makes citizens helpless to not be able to engage with governments, which we see as a gap at Accountability Lab. So we try to bridge that gap at Accountability Lab using Integrity Icon to 
find honest government officials, basically people of integrity, to see how we can engage them further to build accountability in the system in little spaces where they work. Um, we've run this project for over four years, um, going to the fifth edition. And we are trying to build a network of honest government, government officials where we can find situations where they can build up on innovations, on thought patterns in their workplaces to see how we can begin to shift norms and change behaviors. When we first heard about Integrity Lab, Abby and I thought of a book that we both loved by an American author, Rachel Kleinfeld. Rachel argues that there are different phases of spiraling into violence. And she says that one of them is where credible officials, good officials within security forces are prevented from speaking and are too scared to speak up because the system is slowly breaking down. And so something like the integrity icon is something that we identified as a very positive initiative to prevent this violence from spiraling further. So thank you for explaining this better. It is something we truly believe in. One of the other reasons that I noticed Accountability Lab was because of a recent piece that you did, O'Day, where you explored how the NSARS movement is about young people demanding greater accountability. Can you briefly explain what the movement was? SARS in itself is a special anti-robbery squad, abbreviated as SARS. So basically, the, the coining that word was more like young people coming out to say we need to end the special anti-robbery squad, which is a branch of the Nigerian police force set up to handle crimes that deal with robbery and firearms. But somehow over the years, um, the group became controversial after being accused of extrajudicial killings, torture and extortions, um, human rights violations over the years. The start of the process was inspired by, well, one of, one of the things we are, we are thankful for is also the use of social media by young people in Nigeria to expose some of these human rights violations. And one of these videos came up in the southern southeast, southern southeast part of Nigeria by a man who was killed by a SARS officer. Um, after this video was shared on so across social media platforms, it went viral, resulting in the criticism of the SARS officers. Like we all know over the years, they have been controversial over the years and they went out of the mandates why they were created. And the Nigerian officials actually claimed that that video was fake, um, but young people as usual had put up backings to say, yes, this had really happened. And the campaign was aimed at drawing attention to human rights violations committed by the SARS units of the Nigerian police, as well as calling for good governance and, the, and to end police brutality. It's just simply that. And... It's, I don't think it's too much to ask from young, for young people to, from the Nigerian government. Um, in a largely driven youth initiative, um, which was, it was largely without coordination, but one of the things we were excited about is to see young people come together. Um, it's been a long time we've not seen that. I think in my own generation, this was the first of it. We've had several protests. This was exceptional. Um, but the demands are just simple, just calling for good governance due to the lack of accountability within the Nigerian system, the Nigerian police and also to end brutality. It's quite sad in the Nigerian context where if you have dreadlocks as a young person and you walk on the streets carrying a bag, or if you're well-dressed um, driving a good car, you'll be stopped or you just be harassed by the Nigerian the, the SARS officials who are always on the road. And they want to question you to say, how did you end up buying a good car? Or how did you end up by give me a receipt? to the computer which you have in your bag, like just kind of strange questions. And those are the kind of things we experienced um, from the SARS officials. But yes, we're just calling simply for 
ending bad governance in Nigeria and also ending police brutality. So that's simply what the NSAS movement is all about. I would assume that the only reason that young people took to the streets and started protesting was because they hadn't been involved in these discussions or hadn't been brought into processes around how security sectors do or do not provide certain group security. Were they ignored from the discussion before? And do you expect that this will change in light of the NSARS movement? Sadly, over the years, the Nigerian governments don't put much focus on the Nigerian youths. Over the years, it's been a struggle to be part of governance, to have your voices heard. Quite challenging in all these times where they feel we don't have that capacity to be at the table, to make decisions or um, commit to decisions that can help um, elevate or develop the country. Just going by your question, one of the quite big challenges or huge challenges we also have seen is young people are largely over 50% of the Nigerian population. And we see this as the future leaders, which they always tell us, but that platform for engagement is largely missing. The Nigerian political space is largely driven by our leaders, which they've closed the space for their own personal gains um, to see like they have this continuity between themselves and try to benefit from the national budget in terms of corrupt, sharp corrupt practices, which we've seen over the years. But however, young people have capacity, which I think we all just need to have a space at the table to see that we are contributing to the progress of the country. If you look at the NSAS movement, if not for the voices of young people who have come out to say, this is what is happening around the special and anti-robbery squad um, unit of the Nigerian police. It has been happening, but nobody has taken up that concern. But yes, young people are speaking out and making sure we have these things change, which are over the years being like plugged to, to the ground. Yes, yeah, so I think the voices of the young people at the moment would make a change around through the NSTARS movement. It's very helpful to see like we have smart young people and interesting young people who are ready to go into governance to make the right decisions, to make the right moves and ensure we have the right laws and we have laws and actions which benefit the citizens. Do you worry that some of the progress that the NSARS movement has made will be lost in focusing too much on one unit when the whole defence and security infrastructure has flaws that also need to be addressed? If you see currently with the Nigerian situation with the insecurity, it's getting out of hand. Um, I think we all have seen the security architecture is broken down. I think we need innovations and innovations largely will come from young people, um, giving them that opportunity to see what we can bring forward in recent times. However, we just need to find a way to ensure they are doing the right thing. Somehow in 2019, um, the Integrity Icon Project identified a police officer who is a person of integrity who had worked in the southern part of Nigeria over the years in the oil producing community where he has been enticed with 500,000 for a week. Take for instance, he earns about 35,000 a month and he has to earn or illegally earn 500,000 naira a week. That would be like 2 million, over 2 million in a month. But he had turned that down and several other instances which has made him stand out in, in such situations. But like I say, using him as a point person in the Nigerian police would actually cause that change we want to see. However, I think we need to begin to drive people doing the right things at the right spaces, which can help us 
improve on the progresses we've made. Otherwise, we have um, SARS officials who go out there in the public and extort um, citizens um, in, in several ways, which I think we need to address somehow. So in different ways, you've both tried to bridge a gap between defense and security debates about Nigeria in both national and international forums and the priorities of people in Nigeria. What has this work shown about the gap between the priorities of these levels? So did your interviews and consultations, um, have they revealed key issues that were missed in national and international debates? Are there findings in your work that haven't been discussed in national and international fora? It appears they are. So for instance, there have been a um, series of gap between how reintegration programs saved by the community and what the government think they are doing. And um, I'll just speak to some of the gaps. So I've already initially highlighted the lack of ownership of the process, which community felt alienated from, and the lack of trust in the Nigerian system. Again, my colleague Ode have done a substantial justice to that. So there is also the lack of confidence in the genuine repentance of former combatants that have gone through this de-radicalization program. So again, this is a major gap coupled with the skepticism behind monetizing reintegration program. So I would speak more about the lack of confidence in the genuine repentance because there is this sense that because of the ideological underpinnings of Boko Haram, um, community members felt that it is quite hard for them to be able to reform and to be genuinely changed, which in a sense then brings a form of skepticism as to whether or not they can genuinely repent from that sort of ideology. And um, tying that, there is this skepticism behind monetizing the reintegration program. So community felt that they've been, of course, the ongoing Boko Haram attacks have actually had great impact of community. We've seen situations where large numbers of community members are displaced. So they felt that monetizing reintegration program tends to undermine the community that has been affected, who they perceive are not being treated fairly. So if we look at some of the benefits of reintegration, when these people pass through the system, they tend to be given opportunities to learn skills, start up business, or do things that would productively encourage them not to return to crime. But the community are feeling that they are alienated because similar type of, they perceive that similar type of attention is not being given to them as we can see with the, many of them that are displaced in IDP camp. So these are major gaps. And I think what needs to be done in this regard is a bit more transparency and, in a sense, weighing up the ways in which each of these categories of persons are actually given that form of attention. So by this, I'm referring to both the community and those that are reintegrated in the society. So those are some of the major gaps that I think needs to be encouraged to be addressed within the context of reintegration. But one of the key things for me, I will start with corruption, which is key. Um, this is what everybody knows happens in, basically. So in the Nigerian system, we find people get into governments for the wrong reasons, not necessarily to serve the general public or the citizens, but for their own personal gains, which makes it quite tough and something, not, something that has not been addressed over time. Um, yes, we have laws that guide us, but like you see, we have um, that gap between the priorities and these levels in the Nigerian context is we have anti-corruption agencies which are mandated to 
fights corruption in the Nigerian context. But however, the leaders of these organizations, you find out they largely don't even understand the context. So for me, I will understand this from the context of why I'm going to be the leader of an anti-corruption agency is to ensure like government establishment, people are accountable, citizens um, derive the best benefits from integrity, um, accountability, and transparency. But however, we find people in this space who are largely pushed by political affiliations. Um, so I get into the office rather than serve the purpose of the organization or the mandate for which the organization was created. You find out people identifying themselves with political persons around the country, which I think is a huge gap, which needs to be addressed on the long term. Otherwise, you have these issues going in circles within the Nigerian context. Secondly, another huge gap is the, the part of gender and inclusion, which is more like largely a debate, which we need to also look into. The Nigerian context doesn't even provide that space or that platform for young people to participate in politics or decision-making or even making the laws. Um, take, for instance, you have less than 8%, I think, overall in the Nigerian government, both Nigerian minister, um, female ministers, Nigerian female senators or House of Rep members uh, in the parliament, which is a huge point for me, having to move in circles with the same people who have ruled us over the years. And this also takes us to that platform where we need to begin to create this platform where everybody is represented at the table, be it the people with disability, young people, marginalized group. Um, otherwise, we'll keep having these divisions where a handful of people feel they're not represented in government and begin to cause chaos in their localities or their states. Um, so those are the things I personally have seen, and I think we need to bridge these gaps and these conversations need to happen around inclusion and public servants being hired for the right reason and understanding their roles as public servants. This is something that you've already touched upon, but I would like with us coming to the end of the discussion to give the space for you to say, based on the research and the work that you've done, what is one or two key things that you think need to be done both by policymakers, but also researchers, peace builders, to address some of the broader issues that you've seen? Um, yeah, so in terms of some of the issues that have been identified, what I would suggest or encourage policymakers and government agencies to try to do is to be transparent in terms of how they design reintegration program. And that's one of the problems that have came up in some of the studies, including the synthesis that we've done so far, where we saw that sense of alienation of the community where they felt they were not part and parcel of the process. And they felt what was just done is a cut and paste model from the West rather than an homegrown type of reintegration programs that actually involved all parties and stakeholders to the um, process. And I'd also like to encourage the policymaker and government agencies, especially in, re in relation to the monetization of reintegration programs, to provide equal attention to the community as well. Of course, this is ongoing, but more needs to be done in that regard by, again, being transparent, um, sensitizing the public about what has been done so far, showing the process that they have reached in terms of that transparent record, 
when it comes to reintegration and when it comes to the, the support that the government is providing for the community. And then finally, in relation to the lack of confidence in the genuine repentance of combatants that have gone through these reintegration programs, again, I would encourage the policymakers as well as the government agencies, the relevant agency that deals with this sort of issue, to be able to create that sense of confidence on the part of the public. So for instance, letting the public know the measures are in place if these combatants are reintegrated into society, the measures are in place to ensure that they are monitored, to ensure that they do not relapse back to crime, and to ensure that they are less likely to pose harm to the general public. And hopefully this might help strengthen confidence in the reintegration of former terrorists back into society after they completed their programs? Well, one of the basic things for us is focused on building accountability in our in the Nigerian system by supporting active citizens and responsible leaders and accountable institutions. It will be very key to see like we begin to create spaces for public servants to understand the role of integrity and the social contract between um, why, why they're in office and between their position and the people they serve. Also, to look at the points where government ministries, departments, and agencies, which are created for a purpose, stay within that mandate which they are created. Otherwise, we find out public servants who get into the office for the wrong reasons. We have recently found, basically, not necessarily a research, but findings show that young people who want to join public service are now joining public service for the wrong reasons because they want to get job security, because they want to earn a pension, because they have an uncle who is going to give them a contract or something. Those are just the wrong reasons which would have people joining public service. So we need to have a rethink and a conversation on why people need to join public service and the essence of public service in itself and how they can serve citizens um, with accountability and integrity. Um, for me, I, I, one of the things we are trying to push as well is to see how we can have integrity officers around the public service. And there's an anti-corruption unit in most ministries, departments, and agencies in Nigerian public service. However, um, we feel that is not really effective, but if we begin to have people who understand the reasons why they are there for, for the citizens, it might have a long-term effect. Um, secondly, um, I will look at creating space for young people to engage actively in political processes, not just young people, but also bringing into the space people with disabilities, marginalized groups and vulnerable persons. That space needs to happen for governance to be inclusive. Um, otherwise, we have a particular set of people over the years who are going to run this country in a way which is not accountable, and we, we might not have the benefits of governance in the real sense. And lastly, I also like to advocate for the 35% affirmative action for women's participation in governance. Recently, there's a bill in the National Assembly talking about creating additional seats for women in the different states. But however, um, I think we are also growing the cost of governance, which is not sustainable in the Nigerian system. We need to also find out situations or solutions which can, um, in the current context, adapt and encourage and women's participation in political processes. The Nigerian system doesn't accept this, um, doesn't accommodate this, and we need to find a way to start addressing these issues. Otherwise, some of these issues around insecurity, um, lack of accountability, corruption might not be addressed if we don't have 
that space which encourages everyone to be part of governance. Thank you very much for a super interesting discussion. Now I'm joined by Cholu Oni, who is on Chatham House's panel of Young Advisors, and Mariam Haruna, who is a member of Chatham House's Common Futures Conversations. Thank you both so much for joining us today. In the first interview, we heard about what the NSARS movement was. The protests, of course, have an origin that goes back a few years, but the movement last year received a lot of media attention. Could you perhaps begin by telling us about your experiences of the protests last year? October last year, it was a wild time in Nigeria. Many youths have had experience with police brutality in one form or another. So when the protest started, I was working remotely, you know, due to the COVID-19 and many people were. The country was actually experiencing lockdown. We had some measures of lockdown in place already. So I was mainly indoors. I wasn't present for the, I didn't partake in the physical protest, but I was active online and also I'm part of Common Futures Conversation, a community in, a youth community in Chatham House. So I was updating them and I also wrote articles that were shared and read by people in this community. So I was basically active online, social media. And aside um, being a part of the protest online, offline, I felt the effect because actually when it was getting to the end of the protest and things were becoming violent, I were not able to go out of the house like normal. We're scared for our safety and um, um, some areas have been looted, not so far from my residential area. But again, luckily for me, my where I stay, the security, not the police, because the police officers were not active during this period. But the um, neighborhood security, that's um, the people took it upon themselves to secure the neighborhood, like just normal, usual civilians. So they made sure the people that were taking advantage of the protest and trying to um, loot and steal from people didn't have access into our neighborhood. They caught some people that tried it and um, they dealt with them in their own way. And also, there were rising prices of post off. There was fear. It wasn't a fun time. It wasn't a good period. And many of us felt so much pain during that period. With the entourage practice last year, it was really interesting for me because um, I'd spent a long time in the UK. I was studying in the UK and um, I'd attended protests in the UK, so I knew what they were like. But when the protest in um, Lagos started, I started by telling my friends that I probably wasn't going to go because um, I wasn't sure that they could guarantee the security of the people who were going to be there. And I just really wasn't sure about the dynamics of what protesting in Nigeria was like. But very quickly, my approach to that changed because I, I went on Twitter and started to listen to all the issues that people had with the police force, that obviously the SARS police force that we're trying to stop. And having like, listened to everybody talk, having listened to the personal experiences from my friends as well, I thought that actually this is worth um, something that's worth going out for, regardless of whether I was sure about how that protest was going to play out or not. And I remember after like, the first day the protest started and the second day I went out and saw everyone on the streets, like 
all unified against the same thing. I was so proud. I was literally so proud. I was like, wow, like people are actually waking up to the fact that there are things that we can't accept because for a long time in Nigeria, like things just get done that we don't, we as young people or just general public don't agree with. And yet somehow nothing seems to get done. There are no repercussions for that. So the fact that everyone was talking up against a unified evil here was something I was extremely proud of. And the next day, I remember the day after, I got up pretty early and I had to walk, it seemed like a long, long walk because they had closed all the routes to drive there. So you literally had to walk the entire expressway all the way to the process ground. And I got up so early so I could walk that way and then also help with like cleaning up and everything. And this is like people who slept on the street sometimes. You saw them like cleaning beside people who maybe are well to do. And it just seemed like everyone was, look, we're going to get together. We're going to agree on something. And this is definitely not going to happen again because it's a, it's a real problem that we all, we all agree on. And that was the spirit all through, of course. And even till today, whenever we go past the toll gate, I remember on the toll gate, right on the floor, there's still paintings of entars that they've not been able to wash up. And um, every time I go past the toll gate and I see that, I remember back to you know when everybody was out on the street. And it, even till now, I still believe that it's not finished yet, that we've all opened something and birthed something that will definitely just carry us into the future. So that's been my own experience of this briefly. I mean, obviously, the longevity of the protests is really substantial, but you've both mentioned the role of social media, especially Twitter, in both raising awareness of the protests and also allowing people to engage in the movement as well. In this instance, particularly, could you perhaps tell us a bit more about how social media was used? I think that's a great question. <laughs> yeah, social media played a massive role in NSARS. I think. It was literally almost, you know, picture perfect case study for, you know, how to leverage social media and putting together an, um, an organized protest. And even out of NSARS, um, the government had to introduce a social media bill just because of how well we used it. Talking about how it was used, like, for example, because it was during the COVID-19 period and they were imposed social distancing measures and people couldn't gather together to plan, a lot of the discussions that were being had over social media, over Twitter, and like I said earlier, the initial emotion of actually getting people to be a part of this protest was through social media because you could post videos, you could post um, stories, you could post, you know, what we call receipts. Receipts basically refer to, okay, fine, something happened, but I'm not just going to say it happened. I'm going to also show you a picture. I'm going to show you evidence of some sort that this thing actually happened. And that was used to prop up the support that was needed to actually get an organization of that size going. Once it was ongoing, social media was also used to designate where we were going to protest. So we're going to be at uh, the toll gates at this time, or hey, we need volunteers to come sweep, or we need people to come here and assist. That was all on social media. So just information about where to be and uh, maybe probably how to get there. And because on Twitter, you can have hashtags, right? People, for example, people who were getting picked up by the police, there was like communication going around that use this hashtag if you need help, if you're injured, use this, use this hashtag. And it meant that whenever you typed in that hashtag, you would only get information from people who, need, who needed a specific kind of help. And that was really, really organized in that sense as well, because it just helped you get the right information very quickly and without having to sort through all of the uh, voices on, on social media. Also, cryptocurrency came in handy. And I think that was through when, when they started to like block bank accounts and they started to 
so you have to find people who are actually funding this movement because it, it was this was crowdsourced through social media. But once the government started sort of cracking down on the bank account of the people who were actually crowdsourcing this, it was social media's idea that we should move to cryptocurrency. And everybody just sort of jumped on that and started giving the best advice for how we can leverage all the kind of technology, not just social media, for really just keeping this movement going. And social media, again, was used to report on how this money was spent. And it was literally just the platform where we all went to get information. And because of how fast and how quickly um, social media is so like disseminates information, it's just a great place to be. And, and on, the, on you know, October 20th, when, when we had the Lekki massacre to refer to now, a lot of the evidence that came out afterwards was videos from social media. And because of these videos are time-stamped, it's easy to see that they're not, they're not uh, pre-recorded, they're not edited or photoshopped. So a lot of the um, false claims that the government was making, CNN and a number of other like um, press agencies could actually go and get time-stamped content or receipts again and actually use it as evidence for the things that actually played out. So social media 100% helped out and still continues to help us you know, keep our voices about NSARS alive even today. Just picking up on a few of those strands, of course, you've both emphasised social media as this big, giant platform that really spread the word so significantly. Do you think that the way that the protests were reflected in like the mainstream media, so off of social media, for example, do you think that, that they were able to capture the kind of gravity and the feeling of the protests in the moment and accurately represent them in a way that was beneficial to the kind of changes that you were pushing for? Was it useful to the cause or was there a gulf between the way mainstream media in the West, for example, were portraying the protests and the broader security and policing context that they were happening within? Starting from well, news agencies in the West, I think the CNN report was really helpful. I think the interview that was the Amman Paul had with Governor Samuel was helpful as well because it was really frank conversation and what happened and let's have it on paper, what your thoughts on what happened were. Looking more locally, I think I think it would tend to be harder to find nonpartisan news agencies. I think Arise News did a good job of reporting what was going on and actually giving young people a platform to air their voices, as opposed to trying to make out from their own perspective what was going on. I think they did a good job of actually inviting people who were involved in the protest to actually come and, and talk, come and have a discussion. And I, I thought that like facilitating conversations between people in power and like just people who are protesting, I thought that was, that was a great way for them to leverage their role as press in a place like Nigeria. But I mean, generally, I think Al Jazeera covered it as well. And generally worldwide, most of the traction we were getting was off social media. And even Jack, the founder of Twitter, creating an emoji, specific emoji for it, adding it to his Twitter name and really pushing it. Those were our best champions in terms of getting in the voices heard. We had other champions like um, Louis Hamilton, who obviously used social media again with his Instagram page to push this through. And I think, I think that did the biggest, I know we've spoken about this and you're asking more about the press, but I think a lot of the function of what press is was what social media was doing for us. And when we really got um, value from traditional press was when they brought protesters and people in power 
school platform to discuss and in a way where you know one voice isn't trampled upon because of maybe they're standing politically. So I think that was when we saw the power of traditional media. Otherwise, the rest of the press functions pretty much social media. This, what they did, the reportage had very good effect on achieving the aim of the protest. So aside the fact that they were reporting, the protesters were also able to tell their stories from their own point. You see, in Nigeria, during the period of the protest, while it was on, there was kind of a clampdown on the media, especially television. They were not really sharing the protest as, as on what was really happening. So we thought they were, kind, they were in, being influenced by maybe a higher power. They were being limited. So aside a particular TV station that was really interviewing the protesters, interviewing all sides, like all parties involved. When the international media kept on carrying the news, it was getting known worldwide. It was putting a kind of pressure on the on those in power, on the government, on the police officers. They were bringing pressure to actually take actions, to actually take it serious. What some people in power do say is, um, we, the youth, usually make things on social media that we, we don't really... Our actions don't really have effects on whatever they are doing. Like what they do is make things that um the real life is more than social media. But during that protest, they were able to see that nah, social media is part of the real world. Things were being done, people were shaking, people were scared. That's all parties involved were scared. And also the interviews were able to get different perspectives, different sides, were able to capture the truth to the story, and it was very helpful. They helped in capturing the emotions of the protesters and everything, they were effective. So what do you both think the situation is like now? Has the movement from last October led to any tangible changes or are things still in need of reform? Yeah, there has been changes since that time. The There were committees set up in different states to address the issues raised by the protesters and also to recommend solutions to those in power, to the government. So for Lagos State, there have been recommendations from the committee that some people that were, like some people came to the panel, they presented their case on how they were brutalized, harassed by the SARS. So the committee recommended that they should be paid a certain amount of money for their injuries, for their loss, and also some of them should receive letter from the government. Plus, apology, letter of apology from the police or the government. I read in the news that some were being paid already. Other states are also doing something similar. I think Ekiti and River set up committee. River State set up committee, but I don't know how far that has gone. There were also, of course, there were losses. Like the Nigerian insurance has claimed that the equal loss of over 4 billion naira, and that's a lot of money, especially in this economy right now. Police brutality is still ongoing. They are still, people are still reporting on Twitter. People are still being arrested indiscriminately. And this is worse right now, especially because courts are on strike right now. So courts are not in session. So that means if you are arrested, the chance of you being released after the stipulated 48 hours or being taken to court is very, very slim because courts are not in session. So you are likely going to be in jail for days. And that could lead to, we don't know, we saw how it was playing out before the um, protest. So we don't know what could be happening to them now. So 
with courts not being in session, court being on strike, it's worse for people that have been arrested presently. So they are still being arrested. Just some days ago, a trip was gathering the info of people that are being aroused after the protest. And they were quite a lot. They were quite a lot. So this issue is still there. But the main thing is they saw what we what the youths could do. They saw how far they could go. They saw how they could make things work. They saw how powerful the youths were when they all came together. So I think that fear is still there. That fear is still in the back of their mind. Like anything has to come up again. The youths have represented sort of a movement against police brutality primarily, yes. But they also represented a movement against bad governance because very quickly on social media, you started to see hashtags of end police brutality and end bad governance as well. Um, I would say today, as police brutality significantly reduced, maybe only slightly, definitely not to a, a minimum, not to like a zero. And what we want to do is end it, not just reduce it. So that hasn't been achieved yet. What has been achieved, in my opinion, is an awakening. I think every single person who is of age has just the skills of, of falling off. I think everyone is almost politically aware now of their role in the office of a citizen. Police brutality is a result of the system that we have in place. Because if the police are brutalized, we're just victims on the street and there are no repercussions for it. That is down to the system that we have in place and the enforcement um, and repercussions that could have just been imposed on them that are not being. So we need to put the right people in power who are actually, who actually you know, have the will and they want to actually see change happen. And that might not happen immediately, you know, that might not. Um, next year, okay, maybe we're not about to put the best person we want in power. But if we all rally behind somebody and they see that the power of the youth in terms of voting can actually tip the balance of who we want to be in power, then our voices become a lot more important to them because to be honest, the politician or on this side of town, all you care about is the numbers of what's going to get you that seat of power, right? At the very start, we need to show that look, we're a voice to reckon with, we're worth, um, it's worth having us on your side and on the table. And then we can actually, we can actually start to get our demands pass through because I, I believe that the point of that protest was really just to open our eyes to all of the evils that were going on and why things can't remain the same. Now it's up to us to strategically put in actions and processes and take up initiatives that will cause change in the long term because nothing which actually lasts a long time ever happens overnight. It's a continuous effort of people not getting tired, not backing down, I can always think back to NSTARS. Whenever I pass the target, like remember people died here. And if I ever want to be discouraged from pushing the initiatives that I become a part of, I have to remember that people died for this. We all were a part of this and people died. And that's good enough reason not to give up and not to stop. Just to pick up on what you've both said, what we've seen with this movement, and indeed what we've seen with other protests and movements across the world is that the, they're sometimes met with measures than, and reforms that placate but don't really address the underlying structural problems that lead to these issues and this problem of police brutality in the first place. Tolu, I think you touched upon this anyway, but how do we go beyond raising awareness? What, what are the next steps? I mean, once you've put the right people in power, how can they be held to account and what kind of initiatives do we need 
to make sure that these underlying problems are being addressed and that this is really a sustained attempt to reform? I think for a start, we have to get the right people in power, right? Because when I was sort of performing a root cause analysis of why we're where we are, I realized that we've just for the longest time let people get away with anything. We've just allowed the worst of our kind to rule us. And how have we allowed that? We've sold our votes, we've given away our futures for um, a bag of rice, which is what everyone refers to when you sell your votes, that you know, they just bring some, I don't know, food commodities and people choose to vote for a particular party because they've been bought out. But haven't gotten the right people who hold the right values in place. We actually have to then also put in our institutions what we need are strong institutions. Because there's no there's no nation in the world that is being governed by an angel. Every nation in the world is being governed by a human. And humans have flaws. But if they have institutions which are strong and can hold them to account, then those flaws can be at best limited. Right? You can limit the extent to the damage they can cause um, as a result of their own hubris or just... Um, and, and that's what we need to work on. For example, Miriam mentioned now that our courts are on strike. How is it that such an important part of our, of our system is on strike? Like, how does that happen in 2021 in a place like Nigeria? And this is just all a network of wicked problems of not having the right people in the right places. And we need to start paying attention, not to, not to just the presidential elections, but even to the most well, seemingly minor elections. We need to put the right people there. We also need to start to educate ourselves and run for offices as well. For the longest time, people have not been interested in actually taking the seats of power or should I call it the seat of service, because it's really a place of service. People have not been interested in going after these places and actually all of the ideas that they have. I think it's going to take a combination of various efforts. But yes, once we get the right people in power, it's the institutions that are going to hold them to their word and ensure that we're actually getting, should I say, value, the right sort of value. Um, we also need a form of redress mechanism. We need more dialogue between, we need more town hall meetings, um, recently, I saw that I saw an advert because there, there's a rewrite of the constitution that's about to happen, and there was an advert for people to attend a town hall meeting to discuss what was going to go into the rewrite of the constitution. I shared it with as many people as I could, but um, how many people are actually going to show up? How many people are actually going to take to take the interest and the initiative to actually show up and be a part of this? Those little mental decisions make a massive difference because they encourage others to keep um, taking action, keep being a part of the change we want to see. We're not going to profess it into being. We're going to have to act it out and take, you know, take initiative to actually be there and be part of the change we want to see. So the combination of efforts is really the answer to that question. So I think mostly we should try to be educated about our rights, about the rule of law, not just the civilians, even the police. The Nigerian police force should do a whole lot more in educating their officials. So also the government as the bulk of the work falls on the government. Our our police officers, their state of living, especially the young officers, the state of living is 
not really something to write home about. Their residential area, that's their barracks. The ones I've seen in Lagos, they don't really, they don't look good. People shouldn't be staying, especially people that work for the government, people that are charged with protecting lives. They shouldn't be staying in such conditions. Like it, these things, their, their, their state of living could have effects on their mental health and they could take it out on innocent civilians that they come in contact with. So this might lead to different actions. So if these issues are not being tackled from the roots, then we might not end up um, getting good results. Because, yeah, the committee are recommending for a lot of things right now, and um, the government is paying. But the money they are paying are taxpayers' money. So the brunt of it all still falls back on the, the whole country, like the citizens. So if they are not being tackled from the roots, if they, they are not being well taken care of, if they are not educated very well, we still keep on facing these issues. And it also falls back on people to choose the right leaders. People should exercise their political rights, contest for elections, go out and vote, make sure you get your PVC ready. 2023 is just around the corner. And we have a lot of work to do. If we want, if we want Nigeria to be the Nigeria of our dreams, like we don't have many of us are not just citizens, we are just Nigerians, we are only Nigerians. So we, we all can't leave this country. That's just the truth. We all cannot leave this country, leave the country. So we have to do. Yeah, we all have to play our part. You've both spoken about the youth aspect of this protest. Why do you think the NSALS movement has been so youth-dominated? And do you think that there is enough cross-generational cooperation and understanding of the importance of this issue and reforming security and police structures? Yeah, so I think, first of all, the population in Nigeria is youth, over 60% of the population classified as youth. So it would make sense that they're the ones most affected by the issues that arise in the country. As to whether there's been the collaboration of youth enthusiasm and more aged experience, I would say there could be more because during the NSAS period, we did have the ongoing battle of, well, your generation did nothing to help. And this is, you've all caused the problems that we're now facing now. Thanks for nothing really. And that sort of put us on opposing sides with the older generation almost going, well, let's see what you're able to achieve because we fought our battles. If you don't want any support, then go and try yours. And after you know the massacre happened, it was almost a, oh, well, you didn't want to listen. So, well, you've got to learn your lessons yourself. These are conversations that were actually being had on the line, um, on the line conversations that were actually being had. And I thought it was quite sad because it was really an opportunity to learn and just collaborate as well the youth and the older people about how we can move this country forward and not just point fingers. I think since then, you would have to ask a number of people to get a wide enough pool of opinion. But I think since then, we've all sort of consolidated thoughts and realized that if we're actually going to make any change in this country, we're going to need each other's help. We need all the help we can get. I'm of the school of thought that everybody needs to be on their side. Even the police that, that, that we're so protesting against, I was always on the school of thought that it's not really more about them. It's, it's about conditions that you put in. And you're given a gun, um, not paid well, and obviously you have to make a living. So it was, it was always going to be a situation of, of, of what we ended up with.
So that would be my own brief answer. Brilliant. Tolu and Mariam, thank you both so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thanks a lot, Emery. Glad to be on. Thanks a lot. Thank you for having us. Abby and Delina, it was a delight to pair with you guys for this episode. Thank you so much. A delight, truly. Thank you very much. And thanks to Orday and Terella for being our guests. And thank you to the listeners too. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe to both Undercurrent and Warpod on whatever podcast app you use. And also leave us a little rating or a comment. It just makes it easier for others to find us. I've been Amrit Swavi. I'm Delina Gojo. And I'm Abigail Watson. And you've been listening to Undercurrents. <laughs>